Welcome and thanks for listening to this message from City Bridge Community Church. Our heart at City Bridge is to call all people to be fully devoted followers of Christ. To learn more about City Bridge and how you can take your next faithful step with Jesus, check us out online at citybridgechurch.org. Now, here's the message. I am uh, really excited for this morning. It's been one of those weeks for me where I haven't had a lot of energy this week. I've been just kind of battling a little minor health thing, but I'm telling you, the passage itself that we're in this morning gives me a ton of energy. And so I'm excited to get to jump into James 2 verses 14 through 26 with you. You can turn there now. And while you're turning there, I just want to talk about how I just, just historically, this has been one of the most confusing passages uh, in your Bible, specifically in your New Testament. Uh, And it has been one of those ones that people have wrestled with. Does this align with Paul? How does this align with the rest of the New Testament? And so we're going to get to clear that up today. And I'm excited about that. Uh, But let's first read our passage together. James 2 verse 14 says this, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works, can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is well, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Well, how about that? Now, before we dive into the details of this passage, we've got to deal with the albatross that I was referring to earlier. Is James arguing for a works-based righteousness? How does this align with some of the messaging that we read in at least Paul's letters, if not the rest of the New Testament writers? Let me specifically draw you to, uh, to your attention to two verses, one from James and one from Paul. The first is James 2.24. We just read it. When James says, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Well, Paul writes in Romans 3.28, he also writes in uh, Galatians 2.16, but he says, for we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. And so do we have a problem? Are Paul and James foes here fighting two different camps of salvation? Short answer is no, no problem. You want me to move on or should we linger there for a second? 
Well, let's linger there for a second and let's solve this albatross before we dive further into the problem. And uh, in order to do that, let me take you back to your high school English class uh, and back to the definition of the word homonym. Anyone remember that fancy fun word homonym? Homonyms, if you don't remember, are words that uh, are spelled the same and have the same pronunciation, but they have different meanings. So for example, the word bat. If I use the word bat, I could be talking about a flying nocturnal mammal, or I could be talking about a piece of wood that you swing at, uh, or that you swing at a baseball with, right? It all depends on the context clues about what word I'm talking about. Those, a bat is a homonym. I'm gonna throw up a, a slide that also has some other homonyms on there. You get the point of what I'm talking about, but I do wanna mention the last one, which is the word leave because the word leave has almost contradictory uh, uh, definitions. For example, it can mean to depart, i.e. like we'll all leave this room at the end of the service. And it can also mean to remain like, ooh, like that's gonna leave a mark, right? We use the word leave in a couple of different ways. So too with the word justify. That's why we're talking about homonyms. The, the, the Greek word that shows up in the text is, is dikaiou. It also is a homonym. It has two meanings, just like our word justified has two meanings. And so here are the two meanings of, of the word justified. So uh, in Romans 3.28, it says, we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. What's the meaning there? Paul is writing that justified in the sense of we are being declared righteous in the sight of God. That's one definition of justified. James is using a different way to use justified than Paul. He's using it to, in James 2.24 to mean proven righteous in the sight of man. Paul's talking about how one goes from being a non-believer to a believer. And James is talking about how a believer is to live like a believer. Remember, James's letter is a letter about sanctification. What Paul is doing is in a different camp than what James was trying to accomplish. And so Paul writes about justification going, what happens in your inner man? James is talking about what is the outward man? What evidence should there be of the outward man to others? So it makes sense. Justified is a homonym. And so it matters what the context clues are. And so one other slide that we're gonna put up that I'm not gonna go through is this shows up in all over your Bible. This is not just a kind of a, a jujitsu move for this one morning on this one verse. This shows up in a lot of different places. And as always, when you're trying to figure out which meaning of the word justified are we looking at, you look for the context clues. On the left side, in Romans 4 and Romans 5 and 1 Corinthians 6, you're gonna see God and Jesus' name show up a lot because again, Paul's definition of justification or the way he's using justified in his writings is talking about how we are made right in the sight of God. It's different on the right side. We'll get into the context clues in this passage here in a little bit. But that's what is to hopefully kind of begins to, to solve the dilemma a little bit of sometimes how these two guys get confused. But I wanna take us to where James is specifically in this letter. Remember, James is writing a group of Messianic Jewish believers who are being dispersed across the ancient Middle East and beyond. And so he's very interested in how their faith is proven before men. 
Because if they are to make disciples, if they are to fulfill the great commission, they've got to live this out. You can't just have a said faith and lip service. They have to be living this out in front of a watching world if they are to fulfill the words that Christ wanted the church to be a part of. And evidently, this was a struggle for some in the early church. Evidently, there were some that were willing to be hearers of the word, but not doers of the word. Evidently, in the early church, there were some that were willing to pay lip service about God. They were willing to kind of engage intellectually about who God was, but it wasn't having an internal transformation. Their faith wasn't active. And so James is addressing that. We've said all series long that James is trying to show us how to live single-minded, stable in undefiled lives. And in James 2, verses 14 through 26, he's gonna give us a test to see how we're doing. And it was both a test for the early church and it is a test absolutely for us today. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 13, five, he tells us to examine ourselves to see if you are in the faith. Test yourselves, he says. That's what I want this passage to be for us today, to test ourselves to see if in fact we are in the faith. I think James is trying to wake the slumberer up. He's trying to wake sometimes what I'll call the sleepy church up. And now for some of us, that can be uh, an area or two or three of of hypocrisy where we have not uh, allowed or we've quenched what the spirit is trying to operate in our lives. And he's trying to wake us up to that hypocrisy going, hey, where's your works in this area? You're supposed to prove yourself before men all the time. And then there's others that uh, I think James is trying to wake up maybe the non-believer who thinks they're a believer. He's trying to wake them up because listen closely, there's many that I think James was maybe writing to and that could be in the room this morning for us that have a lot of intellectual knowledge about who our God is. But there's no fruit and there's no no internal transformation. And so what I wanna do is use this passage this morning to help us to examine ourselves to see if we are in the faith Now, if it helps you, here's my outline for the morning. You've got a kind of four ways that we're gonna move through this passage. We're gonna first look at the issue that it's faith and works. We're gonna dive into an illustration. James is gonna kind of have a hypothetical conversation potentially that I'll call the interrogation. And then there'll be some instruction as we dive into three examples. Uh, But here's James's singular point. And James's singular point that he's gonna keep working through these 13 verses is that your faith, if you have one, should be evident to others by your works. If you have faith, your faith should be evident to others by your works. That's it. That's how we're gonna approach this passage this morning. And so with that as a backdrop for the whole passage, and that's a lot, let's dive in further. What a great truth we have before us this morning. Verse 14 Paul, uh, James immediately phrases, frames the dialogue. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith, but does not have works, can that faith save him? It's kind of a, a haunting question, is it not? Can that faith save him? Is it enough? The New Testament doesn't offer any assurance to the believer who doesn't have any works in their life. Are you saved? Maybe, but the New Testament 
isn't gonna offer you any assurance to that type of lifestyle. To be very clear, man is made right before God by grace through faith, apart from works alone. It's what Paul writes in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, that man, we are saved by grace through faith so that no one can boast. But then what does Paul go on to write in verse 10 of Ephesians 2? That we are his workmanship and that we are to walk in the works that the Lord has prepared for us beforehand. And so when you think Paul and James, if you kind of put James 2.24 and Romans 3.28 next to each other, Paul and James are not enemies. They are not fighting for two different salvations. Instead, they are what I would say is fighting back to back, defending the one way of salvation from different enemies. Because man and the enemy loves to distort gospel truth. And so James is fighting against people that are trying to excuse themselves from duty, that they're going, I don't have to have works. My faith's private or it's up here. James is going, no, 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 we've been saved for works. Paul's back to back with James going, yes, you can't work your way to heaven. You can't do enough good works to clean yourself up. But he's, and so he's fighting against legalists that are encouraging people to work themselves to death in order to be saved. These are two guys that are fighting and defending the same thing, works and faith. Now, a question I've asked myself uh, as I've just continued to study this passage is why is James so passionate about this? In fact, he's starting to, and you can even see in this letter, he's starting to ramp up his rhetoric a little bit. What gets James so amped about the, this need for works in a believer's life? And it could be any number of things. I think obedience in general should get us fired up about honoring this God that has rescued us. But I think in particular with James is he saw what works does in a believer's life and in the community around it and in the church. Remember, James was a part of the early church in Jerusalem. And in Acts 2, there's this great passage that captures what was happening in the early church. There was this sense of awe and wonder, scripture says, as what was happening because the church was getting after it. Let me just read a little bit from Acts 2, verse 42. This is what James was a part of. This is what James saw. And once he saw it, he didn't want anything else. It says in verse 42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And that's where it is. And all came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. As that church got to work, they got to see some incredible things. And all who believed and were together and had things in common and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together, there's that word again, together, and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And what happened? And the Lord added to their number day by day. James saw the alive church. He saw what happened when believers were putting their faith to work and that their faith was evident before men. It changed what happened in their Jerusalem. And James was like, there's no other way to go, but how we're doing it. And yet the church probably began to stagnate a little bit. And as they began to be dispersed over it, there was potential for 
hypocrisy to enter into the church, false teaching, and, and just deadness in general. And James is gonna lead back, lean back in going, no, 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 we've gotta live completely different. We talk about the power of the gospel all the time here as well we should. What Christ can do in rescuing sinners and bring them to life is worthy of being preached every single Sunday and we do it. We preach the gospel in some form or fashion every single Sunday. But it is also a beautiful thing to watch when gospel changed people, spirit-inspired people begin to get to work. Because ever since Pentecost, man, the church has been doing some really incredible things, getting after it and helping change the landscape of this world through their works. Now, that's not something that um, is just something we keep up naturally in our flesh. Man is predisposed to begin to... um, lose track of their duty, maybe excuse themselves from doing certain things. And it's something that we've even seen in our own country. We've seen many that have claimed Christ with their mouths and yet their lives don't match it at all. And they have no works to associate with their said faith. And in place of what should be the alive church that's active, we've gotten a lot of dead churches that litter our landscape. And people may come and sit in the pews, but there's no disciples being made. There's no lives being transformed. There's no sense of awe and wonder in the midst. And James is trying to light a fire under us to get us moving again. And it was helpful 2000 years ago to the early church. And I think his words are still prophetic today for you and I here in Plano, Texas And I just wanna remind you in the last 2000 years, the church has done some amazing things. The church has been a part of some incredible things. There's a reason you go around and you look at hospitals and the the, the names of faithful believers are a lot of times on those hospitals or, or denominations of the Christian faith are atop those hospitals. It's because Christians for 2000 years have run towards the hurting, the needy, the lowly, the sick. And we've moved towards those individuals. That's what the church has done and used to do more in greater numbers. Today, we've like, like as a church, we've allowed the government to kind of come in and, and, and move towards the needy in a way that the church once did. And instead of using that as a chance to kind of light a fire under us and get us working again and get us living out our faith before men, all we've kind of started doing is complaining about how the government does it. That's our job, not the government's. That's our work to be doing to a watching world. This is a way, and this is what our, the church has done at different times and we need to reclaim it here now, today. It's one of the reasons why I just love that we get to celebrate what the, is happening at, at, at City Bridge Clinic, not for the name of City Bridge, just because we have a group of people, you all that are moving towards others that are hurting. And as we do that, we get to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. Did you hear what Liberty talked about? Do you hear what leaders and and believers in Africa are doing? They're leading the government. They're training up the military officials and the police officers over there. There, the church is equipping the government there. That's what believers do. That's some of the work that we can be invited into. Now, are you just saying, is that all James is talking about? What are the works that James is getting at? This is the letter of James. 
Everything we've been talking about thus far are the sum of the works that James is calling us to do. In James chapter one, he's telling us to be steadfast. When trials and temptation comes, that's one of our works. If we slip up and we give in to one of those temptations, verse 21 of James 1 says, we've got to put it away. We've got to put away filthy, filthiness and rampant wickedness. That's one of the works that we have to do because we're supposed to be hearers of the word and doers of the word. One of the works is, is that we're supposed to move towards the orphan and the widow where we were last week, that we're to be impartial. We're to love all. We're to love God, love others. Next week, Derek will walk us through that as believers, one of the work is that we are to control this thing, the tongue. That's one of our works that James is gonna get at. And even in James four, he's gonna talk about our need to be humble in our relationships towards other people. Remember, 54 commands in James, 54 opportunities that James is clearly going, this is some of the work that he's calling us to. Now, when it comes to works, I do also wanna remind you that works is not a comparison game. An apple tree that has been giving off apples for 50 years has produced more fruit than a sapling that's only a year or two old, and that's okay. You may look at this and go, man, I'm struggling with some of these commands. It's okay. We talked about it from the very beginning is God is after our progress, not our perfection. And so don't compare yourself. If you've been following Jesus for just a year or two, don't compare yourself to the person that's been following Jesus for 40 years and go, man, I wish I, 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 I don't know scripture like they do. I, I don't use my gifts like they do. You shouldn't. The idea of bearing fruit and, and, and working out our faith before men, this is the journey of a lifetime. This is what we're called to do as believers, to make progress and to grow. And so don't get caught up in the comparison game. Don't get overwhelmed by everything James is calling us to do, but we are to take faithful next steps in this area. And a reminder here at City Bridge, we wanna help you. And so if your next step is to get equipped, we wanna help you. If there's a recovery aspect or a, a marriage that, that, that you've got to be working on, we want to come alongside and help you on your journey it's one of the faithful works that we as City Bridge can be a part of in caring for you. Now, James is gonna illustrate the example. So let's go read verse 15. It says, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body. What good is that? James says. So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Again, a little bit of another haunting question. What good is that? Basically, it's been talks cheap. Words have never put food in someone's belly. Words have never put clothes on someone's back as a, we've got to move towards them and have conviction to act and to work out our faith. Some religious benediction of go in peace, be warmed and filled, that's useless to a destitute brother. And James is inviting us into a, a different type of faith. James is gonna call this faith dead, useless. I will say this about our words though. Sometimes our words do betray, do reveal the fact that we know what we ought to do. We know how we ought to love. And so James calls uh, this type of faith useless. In James chapter one, he called this type of faith delusional. When we hear the word, when we know the word, but we don't do the word. James calls this type of faith delusional. 
reminding us there's a real faith, a living faith, an active faith. We move towards the hurting and needy all the time. This is what God's people do. In chapter one, it was the orphan and the widow. In chapter two, at yesterday, last week, it was to people that look different than you or maybe act different than you or aren't of, don't maybe give you as much benefit as you would like as other people's do. And here it's to the destitute brother or sister that needs food and clothing. James is calling us to look for the needy and move towards them. It's one of the key works that believers do is if we hear of someone, if we see something, if we know of something, we run towards them. And this seems like a preposterous illustration. Well, I mean, I wouldn't do that. I wouldn't say go in peace, be warmed and filled. I'd do something a little different. And yet I think we do this all the time. I think sometimes we're walking and we know that someone in the neighborhood's hurting and we kind of see them. We're like, hey, you, you doing all right? Okay, good day. Go, you know, and maybe we don't have these exact words, but we act like it. We know there's a need and we don't move towards it. James keeps leaning into this. This is one of the works that faithful believers do. This is one of the works that the alive church does as we move towards those that are hurting. If a husband or a wife raises her hand here and says their marriage is struggling, we move towards them. If we know of a marriage in our body that is struggling, we move towards them. That's what the church does. And that's what as you and I as individual believers are called to do. That's one of the faithful works that we are supposed to do here. If a man, a woman, a student is caught in a struggle or addiction, we move towards them. We put our faith to work. We feel conviction to act. Now, James is gonna kind of, after painting the illustration, he's gonna have what I will call a hypothetical objection or a hypothetical conversation. By the way, this is something Paul also was fond of doing, especially in Romans. But in verse 18, he's gonna say, but someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. What is Paul saying, or what is James saying there? James, I think is saying there, there is no way to prove your faith to men without works. You cannot prove your faith to men by word alone. You can talk about faith a lot in word alone to men, but at some point, if us, if we were to think you have a faith, we want to see it in action. Jesus told us that you know a tree by its fruit. You know it's an apple tree because it produces apples. You know it's a Christian because it produces works before men that we can identify. And so if a person isn't bearing fruit, then mankind has no reason to believe that person is a Christian. You may have words, but mere intellectual assent is not saving faith. In fact, James is gonna insinuate intellectual assent alone is just a demon's faith. Keep reading with me. Verse 19, it says, you believe that God is one. Good, you do well. But even the, be even the demons believe and they shudder. Correct orthodoxy. Intellectual assent is not a guarantee that internal transformation has taken place. Words don't prove your faith. Even good orthodoxical beliefs don't prove your faith. Knowledge does not equal transformation. Case in point, James says the demons. Demons have better theology than every one of us in the room this morning. They are well aware of who God is. They're well aware of who the son of God is, Jesus. They call him the O Holy One in different parts of scripture. You can go look at Matthew eight as an example. 
They are aware that, that God can, tr- can control them and send them wherever they need to be sent. See, into the pigs over there, the demons asked God to do that for them because they are aware of his power. And they are aware that, coming, that there is a coming judgment for them. They have good theology. They have good Christology. They have good eschatology of end times. And yet they will be in hell because all they have is some intellectual knowledge. And so too is it for many in the church today, maybe even specifically in America today. I think many in our country have what I will call a demon's faith. They know lots of truths about God, but that's all it is, is up here. And it hasn't changed anything here and it hasn't produced any amount of evidence to anyone else. Also lean in here, given the art demographics in particular, but to our parents, let me just say this, a dead faith is deadly to your kid's faith. If you professed Jesus and don't have works, all you are doing is passing down a demon's faith to your kids. James very well may be referencing the Shema here, this thing that would have been on the lips of every Jew uh, in that comes from Deuteronomy 6, verse four. Let me just read you the first four verses of the Shema. It says, hear, O Israel, Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. That's what the demons believe. The demons agree with Deuteronomy 6, four. The question is, parents, believer in the room, is do you live out what comes after that truth? Verse five says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. These are some of the works that should be evident to others in our lives with how we respond to this God. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. And parents, you shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. So parents, you may have great Deuteronomy 6, 4, intellectual ascent. But if you're not living out the behavior of Deuteronomy 6, 5 through 7, all you're doing is replicating a demon's faith in your children. We are called to live out our faith. And it's no wonder that, that, that James starts to build some energy around verse 20 when it says, do you wanna be shown, you foolish person, that faith, uh, uh, do you want that faith apart from works is useless? So how do you know? How, how do you know if someone who is professing Christ actually possesses him internally? You look for the, you look for the fruit. It's about three and a half years ago that uh, it was Super Bowl Sunday, actually, uh, 2019, when there was a, a faithful a, a gal uh, around our campus that many of you know, her name's Jewel, that uh, we had... Uh, as a church body had just been watching her faith be lived out for a couple of different, a couple of of years. And we'd been so encouraged by her and she was married and yet we had never met her husband. And we had always just said, hey, if he's ever available, we'd love to meet him, get to know him. He he was not a member here, didn't want anything to do with the church. Well, on Super Bowl Sunday, 2019, I got a call from Jules saying, my husband's ready to talk. And I'm kind of like, it's Super Bowl Sunday, for goodness sakes. It's cold, it's February. And I'm like, I, like man, go, go in peace, be warm, get filled up on chips and dip. Maybe this illustration's a little more real. But what did the faithful do? They, they moved towards the hurting. 
so I met it, met Mitch at uh, Starbucks on Super Bowl Sunday while the game was going. And I just listened to his story and I listened to some of the ways that he had been hurt by others. I listened to some of the ways that he had hurt others. And just for an hour and a half, two hours, I made a new friend. And at the end of the conversation, I got to share the gospel with, with Mitch and um, nothing crazy happened right then in the moment. But over the next three years, we just kept meeting. I kept hearing more of his story and others in the body joined in and we got to hear more about who Mitch was and some of the different things that uh, he was struggling with and how he wanted help. And then at some point in the last year or so, uh, I'm pretty sure Mitch accepted Christ. Now, when exactly, I don't know, God does. But I look up in the last year and I'm like, something's happened in that guy's life. And he is professing faith in Christ, but he, I can see the works in him and something has changed. I asked his wife this last week, what have you seen in Mitch? What's, what's some of the works that you've just noticed in his life? Listen what, to what she told me about Mitch. Said he's, he's hungry to learn more about God's word. He's fearless in bringing up his faith with strangers. These are some of the works that we're talking about. He's been vulnerable in community. This guy that wanted nothing to do with the church for the previous two years before any of us met him, all of a sudden is now vulnerable with his struggles, allowing community to admonish and sharpen and encourage him as a follower of Christ and as a husband. Get this, Jewel said, Mitch pursues me more than I ever could have hoped for. He has owned his sin and his mistakes and his failings. And he's patient with me as I work through the hurts that that sin caused me. He's preparing our family so faithfully for the baby that's coming. They were in first hour. We celebrated that. And he is sure that God, Mitch is sure God will provide for us even when I'm doubting, Jewel said. How about that? And so is Mitch a believer? Sure has the works of one. Only God knows for sure. But those of us that have watched Mitch's life go, something has happened in that brother's life. And so I bet my life that I think he's a believer. We've seen it. I get asked all the time, is, is my spouse, are they a believer? They're professing, is my friend, are they, are they a believer? And it's like, I, I don't know, time will tell, I'm hopeful. I, I think so, but let's see what the fruit tells us. See what changes in their life. And so the question for you is how can you have assurance of salvation? How do you know? How do others know that you're a believer? When others look at your life, do they see fruit? Do they see works coming out of it? That's a good sign that you have, you can have assurance of salvation. And I wanna remind you, this is hard. There's still much fruit in my life that is not existent yet that I am desperate to see come to fruition. It still takes time. This is a lifetime's journey. And so don't get down on yourself. Don't beat yourself up. But this is about progress. This is about moving forward. It may be bit by bit at time. It may be inch by ever loving inch at times, but we move forward in our faith. It's one of the great works that we are called. To be very clear, you can have a relationship with Christ today. You can declare it and you can, and you can be saved in that. And then you will spend the rest of your time trying to live out a life of full devotion. 
but join us on that journey. You can have Jesus today and you can then begin to live out what that life looks like to others the rest of your life. Take Mitch as an example. And that's what James is gonna do next is he's gonna give us three examples. And so let's look at verse 21. He's gonna jump into Abraham. It says, was not Abraham our father justified by works? Again, read it with the right definition. Was not Abraham justified, proven righteous in the sight of man by works? When he offered up his son Isaac on the altar, you see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is proven righteous in the sight of man by works and not by faith alone. Now, how can we know that James's definition of justified or what I shared with you at the beginning is the right definition? What are the context clues? Look for the context clues. Is this a righteousness before God or is it before men? Grab your pens, underline circle, but you're gonna see that it's before men. Look in verse 18, it says, show me. Verse, later in verse 18, I will show you. Verse 19, you. Verse 20, do you want to be shown? Verse 22, you see. Verse 24, you see. This is about you and I seeing Abraham's faith. This is justification before men, not God. And words don't prove anything to men. We can't see the heart, but it's deeds that men can begin to recognize. And so question, when was Abraham justified before God? James quotes the verse. Genesis 15, six says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Men have always been saved. Men have always been made right with God by grace through faith, apart from works. Men have always been saved by grace through faith, apart from works. Old Testament, New Testament, today, nothing's changed. Genesis 15, six was when Abraham was made right in the sight of the Lord. 20 years later, you and I saw it come to fruition. We read about it. When he put Isaac up on the altar, that's when we know you and I saw his faith lived out. That's when you and I can know that Abraham was saved. You and I don't have to wonder if Abraham faith, we've read about it. We marvel at it. And in that sense, scripture was fulfilled. It was proven right about Abraham. Some 20 years after he was saved, justified before God, man saw it and can no longer have any doubts. Now, a couple of other things, or at least just one other thing I wanna point out to you, that in verse 22, it says that along with his works and faith was completed by his works. What does that mean? Does that mean that somehow Abraham needed to throw a little bit of works into his salvation to get saved? No. This is James 1, 2 through 4. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, even if that, is, that trial is putting your Isaac up on an altar, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. All that that verse means is faith was completed by his works, as it was made more mature, it was made stronger, it was further nourished, 
by the work. So some might say, okay, yeah, that's Abraham. He's the father of the faithful. Of course he did this. But what about others? James then flips the argument. He's going to go from a revered patriarch, a, a, a Jewish male, and he's going to go to a redeemed prostitute, a, a female Gentile. Read verse 25 with me. And it says, in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? This is referencing a story from Joshua 2, when the spies were sent to figure out how to defeat Jericho. We talked about that last week. The answer is French horns. You always send French horns out when you need to defeat, if you weren't here last week, that's all right. Question, when was Rahab justified before God? We'll read some of these declarations that she made about God. Joshua 2, 9, I know that the Lord has given you the land. Verse 10, For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea back in Egypt. Verse 11, for the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. I'm gonna guess at some point in there, she was made right before God. She had an understanding of who he was and she desired to have a relationship with him. But if I'm guessing, she was not justified before men, definitely not justified before the spies until verses 15 and 16. When it says she let them down by a rope through the window. And she said to them, go into the hills or the pursuers will encounter you and hide there for three days until the pursuers have returned. Then afterwards, you may go her way. She knew who God was justified in the sight of God, but the prostitute justified herself before the spies when she protected them and cared for them and offered up that great work of protection. Third example, verse 26, for as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. The spirit is to the body as works are to the flesh. A body without spirit, a body without breath, literally has nothing to offer. It yields no benefit to anyone. So too with a faith without works. A faith without works brings no glory to God, no comfort to yourself, and offers no benefit to anyone else. It's useless, it's barren, it's dead. It's of no practical value, James is saying. So, let's go back to where we began. How are you doing? Examine yourselves, 2 Corinthians 13, 5. Test yourselves to see if you're in the faith. James is, is I think, trying to wake some of us up in here. We asked the, the question in verse 14 of, can that faith save them? Is a faith without works, will that faith be a saving faith? Well, the New Testament doesn't give you any assurance. Doesn't offer you any assurance. And I'm not gonna try to offer you any assurance today. The, you are saved by grace alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. But I will give you a gracious warning. Examine yourself. Test yourselves, ask others, do you see any transformation in my life? Look at Jesus and go, are any of these works evident in my life? And push on yourself. Now, for some of you in the room, I don't want guilt and condemnation to be this thing that bubbles up and just go, okay, yeah, that's right. I've got to work my way. I got to, I got to do a lot more. No, this works are a gift that we get to walk in that God has prepared beforehand. And so if there's two or three or four areas where you need to, that this message kind of goes, okay, that's all it is. It's just going, okay, I now know my next faithful steps. 
a little bit of hypocrisy has been exposed. A little bit of that single-minded, stable, and undefiled way has been pointed out to me. So let's go that direction. And for some of you that have been following Jesus for just a few days or weeks or months, I just want to say, hang in there. Press on, excel still more. Don't compare yourself. Of course, you don't have 50 years of fruit to prove yourself to others. And that's okay. And if you're the person that has 50 years of fruit, keep going. That's many of this in this room. There's many in this room that have been following hard after Jesus for a really long time. And all I wanna tell you is keep going, excel still more. Let your good deeds shine before men so that your father in heaven might get the glory. And that man might go, yes, that's the power of the church. That's the power of a believer. And they'll go, there'll be a sense of awe and wonder and people going, I want some of that. Let that be your story. Thanks for listening. We pray this message encourages you on your journey with Jesus. If you found this message helpful, feel free to share it with others and leave us a review. To learn about City Bridge and how you can take your next faithful step with Jesus, check us out online at citybridgechurch.org. You can also follow us on social at CityBridgeCC. See you next time.